0: Welcome to Drum Tower. I'm Alice Su, The Economist's Senior China Correspondent, and I'm here with my co-host, David Rennie, our Beijing bureau chief.
1: Today, we're talking about U.S.-China relations and what it says that they can be blown off track by a balloon.
0: On February 4th, a U.S. fighter jet downed a 60-meter tall balloon off the coast of South Carolina. China claimed it was a lost weather blimp. The Pentagon said it was a surveillance device. And since then, the U.S. Air Force has shot down three more unidentified flying objects, although it's not clear exactly what they are or if they even come from China. At the same time, the Chinese government has accused America of flying spy balloons over China. With the new focus on China's use of military balloons, governments across East Asia, including here in Taiwan, have revealed that they've long seen waves of balloons over their territory. And apparently what those balloons do is they gather atmospheric data that makes the Chinese military's missiles and radar more accurate. In the meantime, China has also accused America of flying spy balloons over Chinese territory.
1: Not only did the balloon derail the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's trip to Beijing, it's shown that distrust has left U.S.-China tensions sky high.
0: This week, we're asking... Are America and China drifting toward a new Cold War? In this dangerous new era, do these rival political systems have what it takes to manage unexpected crises and prevent escalation into conflict?
1: To figure that out, we'll talk to a historian about how deep those roots of distrust are between America and China. He will describe spy missions more than half a century ago. And we'll hear from a Chinese scholar here in Beijing. And We'll ask him whether Xi Jinping and Joe Biden are serious. About building a relationship with guardrails to keep the world safe.
0: This is Drum Tower
1: from The Economist.
0: Hello, David.
1: How are you? I am well. It started snowing again, so uh, spring, I guess, is on pause just a bit longer. How are you?
0: I'm fine. I'm sorry that it's still cold over there. It is actually starting to become spring here in Taiwan. You can see blossoms blooming on the trees. And recently we celebrated Lantern Festival. It's the 15th day of the Lunar New Year. It involves a lot of light shows and lanterns and in some cases setting balloons off into the sky.
1: That's right. And we've seen that idea of lanterns being let off into the sky, generating a thousand memes this week. Because the interesting thing about the way the Chinese propaganda machine has reacted to this whole saga about the Chinese balloon drifting across America is to treat it like a joke and to treat the Americans as absurd for not seeing that it really doesn't matter at all. But of course, the truth is that this incident is anything but funny.
0: That's right. In fact, it is a symbol of something very serious about how the U.S. and China have entered into a dangerous new stage of relations where it's harder than ever to mitigate crises and to prevent them from escalating into conflict. But let's recap quickly exactly how this balloon saga played out. So if you go back to the end of January, we were all waiting for American Secretary of State Antony Blinken to make a visit to China where he was expected to meet with Chinese leaders and put a floor under the deteriorating U.S.-China relationship. But in the days leading up to that visit, this unidentified flying object was sighted floating over the United States. It was first seen on January 28th over U.S. airspace in Alaska. Then it floated over to Canada and then it came back to America. And by February 1st, there was this huge white balloon in the sky, hovering over Montana, and Pentagon officials were ringing the alarm bells saying, you know, what is this? And it wasn't just the Pentagon. It was ordinary Americans, right, who were looking up and seeing, what is that? And they were posting about it on social media, trying to figure out what it was. Well, what the heck is that?
2: That's not the sun. And according to my little planet guide, it's not a planet. What the heck is that? Any help would be appreciated.
1: And I think that's one of the shocking things about how the Chinese side says, you know, why is this such a big deal? It's a big deal when the public in America could look up and see right above their heads this thing that looks like an enemy hostile act. And you had the Pentagon's press secretary, Brigadier General Pat Ryder, pointing out exactly that.
2: I understand my being convenient, but does the public not have a right to know? The public certainly has the ability to look up in the sky and see where the balloon is.
1: And by February the 3rd, you had civilian airline pilots posting about seeing this thing. And Brigadier General Ryder gave a press conference saying, we know this is a spy balloon. And the next day, February the 4th, with Republicans yelling that it should be shot down, President Joe Biden gave orders that a fighter jet should shoot it down once it was safely over the sea off the coast of South Carolina. Boom! That's my Air Force right there, buddy.
0: Yeah, of course, this experience, it really played into the hawkish mood in America towards China, right? And you could hear there that Americans were celebrating like, yeah, we're gonna shoot the Chinese balloon. But what was lost in the process was, among other things, the Blinken visit was called off.
1: That's right, Alison. I think what's been so revealing about this is not that China spies on America, because of course China spies on America, just like America spies on China. But when you get caught... And when the entire public can see it in this kind of very visceral context as something overhead, then a smart government on the other side realises it needs to be a little bit sensitive. And instead, after initially saying that China regretted that this weather balloon had drifted off course, they basically got very defensive on the Chinese side. And now the line is absolutely that this was a civilian airship, they talk about, you know, fating, that blew into America. And it was outrageous and against international norms to shoot it down.
3: So you
1: heard Mao a spokesperson for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Beijing, uh, using this legal language about how it was a case of force majeure, i.e. it was nobody's fault, and that the use of force by America has been excessive and irresponsible. And we've seen China's for-profit online nationalists seizing on this. So Shen Yi, he's a celebrity professor in Shanghai. He posted a video mocking America as weak, because in his telling, President Joe Biden had to shoot the balloon down because of domestic politics. And then he pushed the party line that China had no physical control at all over the
3: balloon. That's
1: Shen Yi saying that these things are just blown around by the wind, no one controls them.
0: And that is A lie, isn't it? Because haven't we already seen reporting by now that explains balloons are not controlled in the way that, say, a fighter jet is controlled? But China now has a technology where you can maneuver a balloon by figuring out which way the wind is blowing and moving it to different altitudes. And essentially, there is a way that you can move it. And so it's a bit farcical for him to just say, you know, it's a balloon, it's a balloon, it can't be controlled.
1: It's gaslighting from the nationalists, which is their favorite thing. Yeah. And Alice, you know, the truth is, Chinese nationalists just like Professor Shen, would be losing their collective mind if an American spy balloon was visible over mainland China.
0: Yeah, you know, I saw that one Chinese commentator even said that America's shooting of the Chinese balloon gives China the pretext to shoot down American planes, which is a big leap. But the funny thing and the funny hypocritical thing is that in its own propaganda, China has shown that it is willing to shoot down similar balloons. Look at this clip that we found from the 2019 documentary about the Chinese Air Force, Where We Stand.
1: 将威胁空防安全 286能不能打 286能打
0: and in this particular episode, you see that a fighter jet pilot scrambles to get in his jet and go and take down an unidentified white balloon. And they say it's highly possible that it is a high altitude spy balloon. And then he shoots a missile through it and the scene cuts straight to the debris littered in a forest. And basically the point is it's a really heroic display of how advanced China's air force is.
1: And that shot of debris takes us to the next stage of this route because there is now debate about what is going to happen to the wreckage of the balloon that's being hauled out of the sea by U.S. Navy divers. And we saw again that same foreign ministry spokesperson, Ning, asked to comment on the American government's line that it's not going to hand back any bits of the balloon or the spy kit underneath that it finds. <laughs>
0: So you just hear mounting the foreign ministry spokeswoman saying this balloon does not belong to America, which is kind of a a bold statement to make. Does China really think that the Americans will return their balloon debris?
1: Actually, it's a really interesting question. And there is precedent. So back in 2001, on my first posting to China, I was here when they had a real crisis. Now, President Bush, after meeting with his national security team this morning, he made a statement on this weekend's collision between a U.S. aircraft and a Chinese
2: fighter jet over the South China Sea. The president spoke to reporters outside the Oval Office. Late Saturday night in Washington, Sunday morning in China, a United States Naval Maritime Patrol aircraft on a routine surveillance mission in international airspace over the South China Sea collided with one of two Chinese fighters that were shadowing our plane.
1: An American EP-3 spy plane with 24 crew on board had to make an emergency landing on the South Chinese island of Hainan. And that's because a People's Liberation Army fighter jet was basically trying to scare it off, misjudged it, crashed into it, and the Chinese pilot died.
2: Our embassy in Beijing has been told by the Chinese government that all 24 crew members are safe. Our priorities are the prompt and safe return of the crew and the return of the aircraft without further damaging or
1: tampering. It took months of wrangling, but America did eventually get the remains of that spy plane back, but only cut up into pieces and after all of its super-secret electronics had been thoroughly studied.
0: Yeah, that's a fascinating case, but that was back in 2001, right? And we're in a very different position in terms of US-China relations right now. The Pentagon has also confirmed that it's not the first time, you know, we found out last week that Chinese spy balloons have been spotted over Europe, South America and other parts of Asia. In fact, the Pentagon has given a briefing saying this is part of a much larger Chinese surveillance balloon program. It's run out of Hainan and they've briefed people from 40 different countries and they're sharing intelligence and raising awareness that actually the Chinese are spying all over the world.
1: Listeners may be thinking, hang on, why are we still talking about this balloon? It is only a balloon and spying does happen. The answer is it's geopolitics, right? That as so often in politics, the cover-up is worse than the crime. So the fact that China spies on America, the fact that China has these balloons, that is not a scandal. What is so troubling is what this says about their ability to manage a crisis and why something happening in midair, like this shooting down of the balloon, why that starts alarm bells ringing in policy circles is because for a long time now... Serious people have been worried about a much worse crisis where you see two planes colliding, God forbid, pilots and crew dying, as happened 20-something years ago. So Danny Russell, former very senior official in the Obama administration running Asia policy, an old friend of the podcast, he warned us on Drumtown's second episode that this relationship is moving beyond distrust into something uncomfortably close to Cold War. And one of the things that could be a massive test... Of this new very scratchy, very hostile relationship was if you had any repeat of that spy plane collision from 2001. How would the political forces play out on both sides? And would we now see this looking much more like something like the Cold War, where instead of just being two countries that don't much like each other, convinced that the other one is trying to do them down, and that around the whole world, they are constantly trying to shore up their alliances, rally supporters. And I think you can see this week, The State Department has been briefing dozens of countries about how they too may be victims of this kind of Chinese spying.
0: So, I mean, what you're saying is it's not so much the news of the balloon itself that's important, but it's the way that these two countries reacted to the news and the way that they reacted not with quick, direct dialogue to try to de-escalate, but with public distrust driving the relationship and in some ways escalating things.
1: That's right, Alice. Big rival countries, they brush up against each other, but it's like human life. If you knock someone flying and then you just walk away and deny that you touched them, that's what causes the offence. And so I think that this is a worrying glimpse of how China is not willing to even share the same common set of facts. And that matters because the last couple of years we've seen Chinese pilots really close to surveillance planes from America, but actually also from like Australia and Canada taking huge risks. And whenever America asked to talk to Chinese military commanders about how to manage a potential collision and how to manage flying safely and sailing ships safely in international seas and skies. The PLA, the Chinese military, their answer is, you know what a safe distance is? It's a thousand miles away from China. And we're not going to talk to you about safe management of close-in surveillance.
0: So, David, you've been talking about this difficulty in trying to be on the same page when America and China talk about the planes flying around. And I think if we really want to understand the context for this and the Chinese mindset, we need to understand the history of spies in the sky espionage that dates back to the Cold War. I've been speaking about that with a historian named John Delury. He is a senior fellow of the Asia Society Center on U.S.-China Relations, and he teaches Chinese studies at Yonsei University in Seoul. For a long time, America had far superior spying capabilities compared to China. And so I asked Deliri to tell me about that and to take me back to the 1950s and explain what was happening back then.
2: So at the height of the Korean War, the CIA has a program of going to Hong Kong and recruiting anti-communist guerrillas or training them into guerrillas. They would then fly them to Saipan, you know, in the Western Pacific, where they'd get training at a secret CIA base. And then they'd finish up their training in Japan and be deployed, flown, usually out of Seoul, into China. And so teams are being dropped, and they are flying unmarked CIA planes. The mission of these flights during the Korean War was to get in there and overthrow Mao and to subvert communist rule. This would be like if the spy balloon actually had Caucasian Americans parachuting off the balloon and then trying to stage another January 6th.
1: That's fascinating. I would say there was a war on and there were Chinese soldiers shooting American soldiers in Korea. And this was kind of a couple of years after the successful communist revolution. So from the view of the Americans, despite all that secrecy, I think they would have seen this as taking the fight behind enemy lines in the midst of a war.
0: Yeah, so it is in a war context. But it it is interesting how to look back and see, right, the CIA was actively trying to overthrow Mao and to work with anti-communist forces all around China's periphery.
2: The CIA was deeply involved at a certain point with the Tibet issue and had an active program in the late 1950s, really kicks in more after the 1959 Tibetan uprising and the flight of the Dalai Lama to India. There is an active CIA program to recruit, train, and infiltrate anti-communist Tibetan guerrillas. Ironically, This training ends up being done in a place called Camp Hale in the Rockies in Colorado because it's closer to the Himalayas.
1: That's so interesting. And, you know, it may remind some listeners of the training up of anti-communist guerrillas to go back into Cuba. There was such a sense, I think, in America back then at the beginning of the Cold War that surely communism was so unpopular that it could be overthrown quite easily, Now we're 70-plus years into communist rule in China, and it looks very permanent. And Alice, how much did the Chinese and American publics know about all these operations?
0: Well, I asked John Delury about that as well, and he said, of course, this is covert. So much of the public had no idea.
2: At the time, both publics are in the dark about a lot. Now, I'd have to say this was an irony of the research, given how things are now. It's often the U.S. government that's doing more of the lying On this issue than the Chinese government, the communist government complains pretty loudly about the clandestine activity that the United States is directing against them. The U.S. government denies almost all of it, but actually a lot of it is true.
0: And of course, David, this was during the Korean War, right? As you mentioned earlier, it was in the period when the PRC and America didn't even recognize each other. But later on, the U.S. and China did normalize relations and actually America sharing intelligence with China about the Soviet Union was a big part of that. Once the relationship between the U.S. and China normalized, this kind of outright subversion stopped, although surveillance, of course, continued. But I do think that the lack of knowledge and understanding of this history has created a big perception gap between the Chinese public and Americans today.
1: Both sides think they're the victims, right? And the other side is the aggressor. And that's a very dangerous dynamic.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: Feelings matter in international politics and sort of how publics feel about one another. And I worry a lot watching attitudes shift on both sides. If perceptions harden in China that America's kind of out to get it and doesn't want it to succeed as a country. And similarly, if Americans see China as this giant spy balloon that's coming after them, prying into their affairs and trying to subvert international rules-based order. If the two publics kind of lock into those mentalities about one another, then they also immediately make the worst case interpretation of every incident and small things become big things.
1: That last line is is really important about small things becoming big things. Because you know, we may forget about this balloon soon enough, but it actually scuttled a really crucial diplomatic meeting. When Secretary of State Blinken was going to go to Beijing, the idea was for someone who is a completely trusted envoy of Joe Biden to let President Xi Jinping hear with his own ears America's bottom lines, what America thinks about those really tough things like Taiwan or the semiconductor wars. Because they think that only if she hears it from an American side, what America thinks Is there any hope of putting a floor under this free-falling relationship?
0: I wonder if listeners might be getting confused because on past episodes, we've been here talking about how the Chinese Communist Party does want to change the world order in its own interests. But at the same time, we're worried about the two sides hardening into this really hostile stance where they cannot talk. And at the same time, we have no illusions that talking is going to change the fundamental nature of the relationship. But we think actually talking is critical to mitigating the possibility of accidents like this turning into crises and even turning into conflicts or turning into war. And when the relationship is getting worse and worse and more and more hostile, it's even more important to keep those lines of dialogue open.
2: There are critical world issues, economic issues, climate issues, I mean, you name it, that do depend on at least some level of coordination between the U.S. and China and everything has to wait now because of this balloon. So I do think that there are plenty of historical examples of that where the lack of official dialogue or the very, very minimum approach, it created all these misperceptions of both sides, huge intelligence failures because they're just shooting in the dark. Both sides are kind of making up stuff about the other because they're not talking, they're not interacting.
1: Yeah. And of course, that is one of the key messages that we think the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, was going to deliver to Xi Jinping. I talked to Americans who were very familiar with the planning for that visit. Blinken was going to set out a whole series of areas where if you want to have a better relationship, these are the behaviours that we find unacceptable. So if you keep flying Chinese fighter jets so close to Taiwan, swarming Taiwan with these ships, you're going to see a response from us. And you're not going to like it. So, you need to think about if you do this, this, and this, we're going to respond in ways that you're not going to like. So, it's going to be kind of a bleak meeting.
0: Bleak one, but a necessary one.
1: In a moment, we'll be asking what kind of guardrails America and China could build to keep their relationship from veering completely off course. But first, we wanted to remind you that you can read even more about that relationship in this week's Economist. Plus a great piece I love by Alice this week about the latest Zhang Yimou film, which is so different from the wonderful Zhang Yimou films of 20 years ago. This is like nationalist historical schlock, or is it actually a good movie, Alice?
0: Um, it was an entertaining movie, <laughs> um, but basically it's a historical drama, uh, suspense, comedy. And it's it's about a Song Dynasty general named Yue Fei and a guy who betrayed him. And I don't want to give it all away, but overall, it, it uses a bit of Chinese history to push a message about not being a running dog, not being a flunky for foreigners and keeping loyalty to your ethnic people. But if listeners want to read it, they will need to subscribe to The Economist. Luckily, we have a special introductory offer, which you can find at economist.com slash drum offer.
2: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong
0: place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. we've been discussing what the balloon incident shows about US-China relations and what it means for the future.
1: And just as we had John Delory there talking about why the American Secretary of State's trip to Beijing would have been so important, I thought we should explore the Chinese side. So I spoke to Professor Dawei at Tsinghua University. So he's a scholar with good connections inside China's foreign policy machine, but also the military and the national security machine. And I asked him, First, did he think China is really serious about lowering tensions with the US? And if so, why? Because you have all those Western commentators, Alice, saying that China is on a charm offensive because it's doing so badly, the economy is slowing because Xi Jinping, the supreme leader, has made so many mistakes. And so I wanted to ask a well-connected Chinese scholar, is that how the Chinese would see it? I know this
3: analysis in the US about China changing its foreign policy because it's facing a very difficult political and economic situation. But in China, we do not view this from the same perspective. China, of course, wants to uh, lower tension with the United States because we think the current trajectory could be very dangerous. Of course, it's a competitive relationship, but we do want to save some area of cooperation and also to limit the extent of the deterioration of the bilateral relations. But we think that the Biden administration has not been ready to do this uh, in his first year um, because it wants to strengthen its own situation in the U.S. domestically. And then the U.S. wants to work with the allies To form a so-called environment that is in the U.S. interest against China, so after the two years, probably the Biden administration now feel that they are in a better position to stabilize the bilateral relations with China. So with this different understanding of the situation, I think cast a shadow on the future
1: dialogue and the future communication between the two governments. Isn't that interesting? You see the difference between a kind of celebrity commentator like Shen Yi, who we heard right at the beginning. It's all about how weak America is. But when you talk to a really serious guy like Wei, with good connections to the actual policymakers, you hear that actually they're thinking all the time about American strength.
0: Yeah, but it's interesting how he talks about a lot of Americans or foreigners saying China's put on this charm offensive because China is in a weak place. And he says that is not how we see things. Does he not acknowledge at all that China has changed its foreign policy attitude? Or does he have an alternate explanation?
1: So I've talked to him several times, and he's actually pretty candid about how he thinks that wolf warrior diplomacy backfires. He's not going to deny that it may harm China's interests. And he's very much in the line of a loyal member of the foreign policy establishment who thinks that Actually, China needs to do a better job of reaching out to those moderates who still exist on the American side. Because I think that he does accept that fundamental framing that these two giant nuclear armed superpowers with some pretty serious potential disputes over a place like Taiwan, which could turn into a shooting match, that before you worry about anything else, don't start a war because you could blow out the world. And that is something that President Biden has pretty much said in public and certainly we know he said when he talks to Xi Jinping in private that if you're a world leader of one of the two world superpowers job number 1 is don't stumble into a war so i asked professor da does the chinese leadership also share that real fear that the two countries could stumble into a war besides china want to avoid military conflict china
3: also wants to stabilize the trade relations and it wants to make the people-to-people exchanges normal, and uh, it wants to keep the technological cooperation with the U.S. normal. To to use the U.S. term, small yard, high fence, we do want the U.S. side to keep their yard small and their fence to lower. So China wants to avoid accidental war, but China want more beyond avoiding external war, and China also want to safeguard its own national interest.
0: Mm, Yeah, that's the tricky part there, where, of course, he would say like everyone wants to avoid a war, but then there are these national interests China must safeguard, these red lines, things like Taiwan is a part of China, Taiwan cannot have sovereignty, those things that fundamentally America and China cannot agree on. And so those two Desires are in contradiction with each other.
1: That's right. And what he teases up there is actually, if we ever end up in something that looks like a cold war, it is going to be a whole lot more complicated than the old one. We are trying something unbelievably hard, which is to have two countries that are now basically convinced the other one is trying to hold the other one down, that are also utterly economically interdependent. You know, Alice, I read about the U.S.-China relationship a few years ago, and I ran some numbers because I was curious. Back in 1987, the end of the Cold War, two-way trade between the Soviet Union and America was $2 billion in a single year. You know what it is now between the US and China? It's $2 billion a day. (laughs) And yet you have these two countries that can't agree on what the balloon was even doing over America and this fundamentally toxic conviction that you will remember from being here in Beijing, that when the Americans talk about, let's have some agreements on making rules of the road. Let's try and work out how to manage our differences responsibly. Because China's so locked into this sense of itself as the underdog. And when you're the underdog and you're the victim, you think that rulemaking is a trap. And so this, if it turns into something like a Cold War, is going to be so much harder.
0: I do just want to respond to what you said about how China has this underdog view of itself and it thinks that whenever the U.S. talks about making rules, the rules are not fair and the rules are meant to keep competing nations down. Right? I mean, of course, China has not been very good at sticking to rules when it comes to not being protectionist, respecting intellectual property and so on. But it is also true, isn't it, that sometimes America does make rules that are meant to block China from achieving its goals, right? And we saw that most clearly with the export controls on chips last fall. And that was done in the name of national security and in the name of preventing China from attaining the kinds of chips it needs to make the weapons that it wants because there's this hostility and there's this fear, maybe a legitimate fear, that China will use those to gain an advantage in a military conflict. So sometimes it is true, right, that the rules are meant to stop the other side.
1: And Alice, you're absolutely right that we're in a kind of vicious cycle where both sides are convinced the other side is so dangerous that they need to enact these new controls. And the other thing I think we need to be fair and say is that America is not always picking the smartest of fights. And so you're seeing a whole bunch of state legislatures passing laws about foreign purchases of farmland as a threat to food security. And that points to another way in which this is harder than some other fights that America has had in the past. So if you want to go back to the 1980s, America wasn't just worried about the nuclear threat from the Soviet Union. It was also worried about the commercial rise of Japan. But of course, Japan was a friendly ally. It was not an ideological threat. And remember how Japan fixed those fears back in the 80s was among other things to do stuff like build giant Toyota plants in America to create lots and lots of American jobs. That was a kind of way out for Japan. But now, look at how many Chinese investments are coming under scrutiny as a threat to national security. And so we just saw a Chinese corn mill in North Dakota being blocked because it's near an Air Force base. And so that route out of the commercial confrontation that Japan took in the 80s is less and less open to China.
0: Yeah, those economic ties really complicate this new era, not only for America and China, but also in America's efforts to build alliances and form these new blocks, right? Because many of the allies that America wants on board, they may agree that China is a security threat, but when America passes protectionist policies, they also hurt its allies on the economic front. And so it it is just much more complicated and much more difficult to manage this relationship.
1: And because this is getting a bit grim, Maybe we should try an optimistic note, because I think there are kind of glimmers of optimism. So one of the most depressing aspects of the Soviet confrontation with America was that their formation of blocs did lead them to prop up some really horrible regimes on both sides. There is an optimistic view that some of this competition for the hearts and minds of other countries around the world, this time round, if you look at a field like, say, climate change or development aid, it could actually force the US and China to, to be their best selves.
0: Yeah, that idea of competing to show who's the more benevolent superpower. That is an optimistic way of looking at things. Oh, but David, I do want to go back to your conversation with Dawei at Tsinghua University. You guys spoke about how China also wants to avoid an accidental war. Did you ask him about actual guardrails that could be put into place to prevent that?
1: He is, I think, audibly concerned about how badly the two countries have communicated during this crisis over the balloon and how they need to draw some lessons from this pretty trivial challenge that they are not rising to right now we need some crisis management process
3: talk to each other effectively the u.s side can talk to china and without going to public and also without shooting it down unilaterally the two sides can sit down and talk about some common rules Regarding, for instance, the altitude of the territory sky and the rule of this kind of balloon and the procedure to handle if this balloon enters another country's
1: territory. So, Dow just raises a fascinating point there exactly the kind of things that these two countries do need to talk about. So, it sounds technical, but it's not. He's talking about the altitude that a balloon can fly at. What he's really saying is where does American airspace end? Because we know it doesn't go to outer space. We know that a satellite flying in outer space over your country isn't an attack on your country. You don't control the whole of space up to the stars, but it's fuzzy when it comes to the sky. And this points to a big problem, which is that at the moment, there are a whole bunch of unanswered questions about things like anti-satellite warfare, some new sort of weapons like artificial intelligence-assisted lethal weapons the Americans and others would like to talk to the Chinese, the Russians and others, and say, we need some laws of war. For the moment, the Chinese side has been completely resistant to having that conversation because their view is that the Americans are the stronger party and they're the bully. And because they take that view, they think that it's on America to fix every crisis. Dawei is, I think, a rare person in the Chinese scholar community who's willing to admit that actually both sides have some work to do. I think both in China and in the
3: US, there are still some people working for a stable bilateral relations, but unfortunately they are in the minority. I think the Biden administration do want to stabilize the bilateral relations, but it's in a quite a difficult domestic political environment. If I think the Biden administration don't want to be viewed weak, facing the Republicans and its critics and also the medias. So that gave Biden administration very small room to maneuver facing the crisis. Though I agree that China-U.S. relations are very difficult and the prospect is also not very optimistic.
0: It's striking to me actually that Dawei admits that there are people working for stable bilateral relations, but they are in the minority. And he admits it's on both sides. And then he goes to talk about, yeah, the domestic public mood is really bad in the US. Everyone is so hawkish. But what has gone unsaid is that in China, there's equally little room for maneuver because of the domestic environment that Xi Jinping has created over the last 10 years, where you can't have discussion of how to improve this relationship without being attacked by nationalists. There's just such a fraught, domestic environment that the voices that need to say these rational things, they don't have the space to say them.
1: I think the other piece of bad luck we had with this balloon cancelling the Blinken visit is that in both America and in China, I've talked to people who say there's a really narrow window to try and get this relationship slightly more stable because we could have a speaker visit by the new Republican Speaker of the House of Representatives uh, who says his plan is at some point to visit Taiwan where you are. We saw just how angry China was when the previous speaker, Nancy Pelosi, visited last summer. And then in 2024, we have elections beginning of the year where you are, right, Alice, in Taiwan, yes. and then in America. And you know when you see the State of the Union address in Congress and people chanting USA, USA, members of Congress, when Biden says tough stuff about China, that's this year. But imagine how it's going to be next year. So if there's a chance of having calm talks about how do we manage our differences... I think a lot of people think it's going to be this year and probably not next year.
0: Right. And it's not only those potentially sensitive or inflammatory events on the political calendar. It's also just the fact of so many planes and ships flying around at risk of a collision at any point. And I can only imagine if we did have a repeat of something like 2001, where there was an actual death on either side, it would be much, much harder to de-escalate.
1: That's right. You know, so I was on the ground in Hainan Island watching the, the American crew released. And the deal that got them released was that George W. Bush, who had just been elected president, allowed a letter to be sent by his officials to the Chinese side saying that America was very sorry that the Chinese pilot died. And that was the price of getting them out. Imagine what Republicans would say now. I mean, Congress kind of grumbled a bit back in 2001, but they didn't stop him doing it. Imagine what Republicans would say if Joe Biden apologized for a crash, which downed an American plane. And China was also keeping a lid on the nationalists back in 2001. So I was on the tropical island as the crew flew out and local students said that they were angry that the crew had been allowed to go without being put on trial. But Back then, 2001, there were no smartphone videos. There was no Douyin. There was no Weibo, these kind of social media platforms that so many Chinese spend their time on getting angry, even with the censorship. It was a different world. The stakes are higher. The two countries are angrier. China is incomparably larger and more powerful than it was in 2001. President Biden is right when he says a world leader's greatest responsibility is to avoid an accidental war.
0: Right. And, you know, the driving questions for this episode that we've been trying to answer are, are America and China headed into a new Cold War? And if they are, do these two political systems have what it takes to avoid that war turning into actual conflict? And I think the answer in many ways is yes, we are headed into something that looks like a new Cold War. But at the same time, it's very different. The economic mutual dependency of these two superpowers make the current situation so different. So it's yes and no, and then when it comes to do they have what it takes, it's something we definitely see that there are efforts being made. We believe that both sides wanted to at least have this visit, but then we also saw how quickly that fell apart. It's something we have to keep an eye on, and I think the small part we can play is to observe and report and try to offer informed analysis on what the best way forward could be to keep these tensions from boiling over. And with that, we want to say thank you to everyone who has been sending us feedback on Drum Tower. We love reading your comments and questions. And we know this topic is one that many listeners are interested in. So if you have something to say, please contact us. Send us your comments at drum at And
1: thank you for listening to Drum Tower. We'll be back next week.
0: Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alicia Burrell and Barclay Bram produced this episode. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim, and music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell.